making your weekend even better. This is the best of Mark Levin. I just wanted to mention our most advanced stealth fighter loaded with cutting-edge technology that no other country has. One of them, on the USS Carl Vinson, in the South China Sea, slipped off of the deck and sunk into the ocean. According to the Daily Mail, and I've not seen this anywhere else, race to beat China to recover... $100 million U.S. F-35 stealth fighter from bottom of South China Sea after it crash-landed on aircraft carrier USS Carl Vinson. I wouldn't say crash-landed, but in any event, it slipped off the deck and fell into the ocean. Fierce secret technology from America's most advanced jet can fall into enemy hands. The Navy said the stealth fighter subsequently fell into the water with the landing mishap. It is packed with the latest technology and advances in radar deflecting design. It's currently in the South China China Sea, taking part in exercises. The pilot, safely ejected, rescued by helicopter, seven were injured, three required evacuation. Now, it leaves the Navy, they write, with a complex salvage operation if it is to avoid its most sophisticated warplane falling into Chinese hands. Now, I must tell you, I am confounded here. Obviously, the Navy knows exactly where this jet fell into the ocean, right, Mr. Producer? Is there a reason why they don't effectively cordon off the area? with other ships or or monitor the area like close up um, in order to ensure that uh, that in fact the Chinese don't get to it it carries an arrestor hook to help it land on aircraft carriers and the expanded wingspan needed to be launched by catapult As well as its radar-avoiding design, it is crammed with sensors that beam updates directly to the pilot's helmet. Last year, Britain appealed to the U.S. for help in finding an F-35B Lightning II that toppled from His Majesty's Queen Elizabeth into the Mediterranean during a failed takeoff. Fearing that Russia would try to salvage the jet and copy the technology, it was retrieved last month during a secret operation. U.S. Navy jet was part of a deployment designed to bolster American presence near Taiwan after China had buzzed the island's airspace. Let's see here. So that's, that's, that's the bottom line. The Pentagon said two U.S. Navy carrier strike groups led by the U.S. Carl Vinson and the U.S. Abraham Lincoln began operations in the South China Sea on Sunday. They entered the disputed sea for training as Taiwan reported a new Chinese Air Force incursion at the top of the waterway. The Vincent is supported by more than 5,000 crew members, 65 fixed and rotary wing aircraft. And uh, that's the situation. Landing gear on the jet failed to extend, but instead of ejecting, the pilot decided to land the U.S.-made aircraft 
in an air base on its belly. That's another instance uh, where there was a problem. We better hope to God they don't get this jet. And we better do everything humanly possible to make sure they don't get this jet. Or the Communist Chinese Air Force, by stealing our technology, will be able to advance its technology by 30 years without having invented a damn thing. And it is the technological edge that keeps us ahead of the enemy. So let us hope that's done and done right and done fast. We've talked about on this program, probably more than any other program, on Levin TV and on my Fox show, about the electrical grid and how it is exposed to the enemy. Russia knows that our electrical grid is exposed. A cyber attack on the electrical grid can shut it down. Can shut it down. The communist Chinese have killer satellites that can take our our satellites out and blind our military. The GPS systems that are used, including by the infantry in the field. We've known this for a long time, which is exactly why President Trump started the Space Force. Given the bureaucracy at the Air Force, and I don't mean Air Force pilots and personnel, I mean at the top, and the resistance there. So he broke it off so so it could uh, direct its attention full-time every day to the battle in space, because the communist Chinese are there first. Very, very serious times. Very serious. The uh, people say, why, why do we care about Ukraine? A lot of people say this. Why do we care about Ukraine? I think to myself, we're not really that stupid, are we? That we don't understand why we care about it? I spent a lot of time on that yesterday, as you know. One of the reasons I said yesterday, and I believe this, is that Putin isn't going to stop in the Ukraine. There are four NATO countries that share a border with Ukraine. And what else will happen? Well, our other enemies, again, will see that, that we're incapable of doing anything. And they will move. They will move. And uh, these problems are going to start to pile up and get worse and worse. What else will happen? Russia itself will be further motivated to take action. So doing nothing doesn't just mean that there's no cost. Doing nothing means there's severe cost. It gets bigger and broader and deeper as we've seen throughout not just world history, but our own history. I'm not a military expert, but what what should we do? I would arm up Ukraine as much as possible. We should have been doing that a long time ago. And of course, the, the events, the provocative events that led up to this point with the Biden administration showing appeasement, whether it's that oil pipeline 
or surrendering basically on the uh, nuclear arsenal that that Putin has, and on and on and on, or just the the installment of Biden looking at him, taking the measure of the man, could be provocative enough. But there's a lot of consequences that result from these events. A lot of consequences that result. So it's not something we can just blow off. All right, there's other things I want to get into. Just a couple of quick things. This group, Media Matters, when I mentioned Soros in the context of the Nazis the other night, they went nuts, didn't they, Mr. Producer? They just flipped out. It was all hands on deck because that's their sugar daddy. It's the sugar daddy of the Democrat Party. It's the sugar daddy of all the radical left American Marxists, NGOs, and other charitable organizations. And so they, they go on immediate attack. That Levin said Soros assisted the Nazis. I only took Soros' own words. The interview was 60 Minutes several years ago. He said he had no, no compunction, no regrets about what he did. His father was a well-to-do, fairly wealthy, I believe, attorney there in Hungary. He had a, uh, a Nazi who was uh, a Christian, adopt, uh, at least born a Christian, act like he adopted his son, who they would then claim was Christian, and he would go door-to-door on behalf of the Nazis and steal the property of, uh, of the Soros neighbors and others. He was asked if he had any regrets about it. He said no. He was asked pretty much when you think back on this, you know, again, my language, does it upset you? Pretty much he said no. How dare I reference him in context with the Nazis, Mr. Producer? But that really wasn't the point of the entire discussion. And Media Matters knows it, but they don't care. They'll defend Soros and they'll smear anybody who dares to bring up his past. And how he did in fact work with his phony father in the taking of property from Jews. I assume that helped the Nazis. Why else do it? They've also defended Black Lives Matter. We talked about that. The Black Lives Matter chapter in Washington, D.C. said, why, why do we call cops who were shot heroic? Media managers didn't have a problem with that. They don't have a problem with that. So that's the organization that so much of the media look at. They know they're filled with reprobate, uh, reprobates and miscreants and malcontents. They know they're an operation of the radical Marxist left in this country, and they shouldn't have a nonprofit, in my view, uh, tax designation. But they do. But it doesn't matter. They're not investigated. They're not charged. Are they? Lots more. I'll be right back. Mark Levin. 
You're listening to the best of Mark Levin. Okay, folks. On March 8, 1802, just days after Thomas Jefferson's followers, the Republicans took control of both houses of Congress because uh, Jefferson had won the presidency also. Congress repealed the Judiciary Act of 1801. On April 29, 1802, Congress enacted the Judiciary Act of 1802, which, among other things, abolished the 16 new judgeships created by President Adams and his Federalist Party. See, Adams tried to rush it through as fast as he could because of the delay between the election and uh, Jefferson's inauguration. In its 1803 Marbury v. Madison decision, the Supreme Court determined it had the power to decide cases about the constitutionality of congressional executive actions. And when it deemed they violated the Constitution, overturned them. The shorthand label given to this court made authority is judicial review. And this quite literally is the foundation for the runaway power exercised by the federal courts to this day. What is far less recognized is that Marbury started out as anything but the ominous precedent it has become. It was a brilliantly conceived political strategy crafted by John Marshall, a master politician. Marshall, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, wrote the decision not to set a revolutionary precedent, but to deny the new president, Thomas Jefferson, his longtime political rival, an opportunity to rebuff a Supreme Court controlled by Jefferson's Federalist opponents. This is Levin's take, based on my reading of history. Marbury was precipitated by the election of 1800 in which Jefferson, the incumbent vice president and leader of the Republicans, ran for president against the incumbent president, John Adams, leader of the Federalists. The Federalists controlled both houses of Congress but were torn between the followers of Adams and Alexander Hamilton. Hamilton's faction withheld its support for Adams' re-election bid in 1800, and the race ended in an electoral college tie between Jefferson and his vice presidential running mate, Aaron Burr. This is what brought us the 12th Amendment, by the way. Adams came in third. The election was then thrown into the House of Representatives. Realizing it would not win re-election, Adams moved to solidify his party's influence in the federal government. The passage of the Judiciary Act of 1801, creating 16 new federal circuit judgeships, was part of his strategy. Just prior to leaving office, Adams selected in the Federalist-controlled lame-duck Senate-confirmed nominees to fill the posts. Adams' turn ran out, however, before John Marshall, who was then Secretary of State, could actually deliver the commissions of office to some of the designees. Let me stop there. There is no way Marshall should have even been involved in this decision, as I explain in the book later. He had a conflict of interest. He had a conflict of interest. He was the Secretary of State who would deliver the commissions for his president and his party that lost. Marshall's successor as Secretary of State, James Madison, refused to deliver the commissions at Jefferson's direction. And William Marbury, among others, filed suit in federal court seeking an order, writ of mandamus, directing Madison to deliver him his judgeship as Justice of the Peace, his commission. Marshall, long a rival at Jefferson's in Virginia politics, was one of the most articulate leaders in the Federalist Party. Marshall had served in the Virginia State House, the U.S. House of Representatives, and was one of President Adams' representatives to France in 1797, and then, of course, Secretary of State. He was nominated to be Chief Justice by President Adams and assumed the post on February 4, 1801, exactly one month before Adams' term ended. 
So he was appointed and confirmed quickly after Jefferson had won the presidency. With the Republican majority elected to both houses in Congress in 1800, Marshall realized that Jefferson and his Republicans could denude the Supreme Court of authority and that he as Chief Justice would be impeached and removed from office, given the way he was appointed. This is Mark speaking. Marshall understood that in Marbury case, if he ordered Secretary of State Madison to deliver Marbury's commission to office, Jefferson would order Madison to ignore the Supreme Court's writ, and the court's authority would be seriously weakened. Marshall was also concerned that he not be seen as protecting the interests of the Federalist jurists like Marbury, who had assumed his position as a justice of the peace and had been hearing cases and issuing judgments for a year. Bearing all this in mind, Chief Justice Marshall's decision in Marbury, while upsetting the Constitution's balance of power and the relationship between the federal government and the states, was a master political stroke. Marshall stated that Marbury, consistent with legal doctrine at the time, had something akin to a property right to the office, to which he had been nominated and confirmed. Marshall also said the federal judiciary should be able to issue an order directing the appointment of of, uh, Marbury, but because the Constitution did not enumerate such an original right for the Supreme Court, well, the court was powerless to do it. Then Marshall went well beyond the specific issues in the case. He could have ended it right there. But he said that the court had a responsibility to set aside acts of Congress that violate principles enumerated in the Constitution. I don't have time to read what he said, but it's here. Marshall's Federalist Party had lost the presidency in Congress, but Marshall was determined to fight back. And so the doctrine of judicial review was born. Yes, the Constitution is indeed the supreme law of the land. But now the court, by its own fiat, would decide what is or is not constitutional. The Constitution's structure, including the balance of power between the three branches, was now disturbed, if not broken. Although Jefferson is claimed by modern Democrats as the father of their political party, he was a leading opponent of judicial activism. After Marbury, Jefferson became an even more vocal critic of what he viewed as the overreaching of the judiciary under Marshall's leadership. To Abigail Adams, John Adams' wife, Jefferson wrote a year after Marbury, quote, The Constitution meant that its coordinate branches should be checks on each other. But the opinion which gives to the judges the right to decide what laws are constitutional, what not, not only for themselves and their own sphere of action, but for the legislature and the executive, also in their spheres, would make the judiciary a despotic branch. And it goes on. The Constitution would not have been ratified. It would not have enough votes to ratify. Nine states. If the assumption of judicial review under Marshall had been explicitly stated in the Constitution itself, there's no way. Now, what does this have to do with January 6th? The Constitution explicitly says at Article 2, Section 1, the second paragraph, each state shall appoint in such manner as the legislature thereof may direct a number of electors equal to the whole number of senators and representatives to which the state may be entitled in Congress. This was understood by the states to mean that the legislatures would have the authority to make the determination on how they were selected. Very rarely in the Constitution did the framers reach out and specify a branch within the states. But here it did. 
the legislature. Not the governor, not a state court, not a board of election. The legislature decides. The United States Supreme Court in 2020, with all this judicial review power to reach into every cultural issue in the country, every classroom in the country, without limit, other than its own limitations, that it imposes rarely on itself, had the requirement to ensure that the, the black letter law, the text of the Constitution was upheld. This language is not confusing. It's not confounding. It's as clear as night and day. And it was clearly violated in the 2020 election in one state after another, purposely, by Democrats and the Democrat Party, by individuals who they hired, hitmen litigators, like Mark Elias and others, who went around the Republican state legislatures in the Republican states, including Republican states with Republican executives who are irrelevant to this process, except under law, which I'll get to in a moment, and defied the Constitution. The Supreme Court failed to act, claiming judicial review in the past for the last 200 and some years. But in this case, it chose to duck. That sent the matter to the United States Congress to decide. And so what they do at National Review and elsewhere, I'm not just picking on them, they go to the Electoral Count Act of 1887, which is an enormously complex law. In fact, it is a contradicting law in many respects. Um, under the 12th Amendment of the Constitution, the Vice President, who is the President of the Senate, undertakes the task of opening the electoral certificates. The Vice President's role is limited. Now, both houses can overrule the Vice President's decision to include or exclude votes. The Vice President's role to include or exclude votes can be overruled by both houses. And if there's a tie, say, between the House of a state and a Senate of a state, the governor's certification trumps, according to the statute. According to the statute. Now, decisions have been made by vice presidents serving as president of the Senate with respect to the electoral count. 1961, Richard Nixon. He allowed late filed votes to count, even though they were against him. In 69, Hubert Humphrey, having run for president in 68, decided he better recuse himself from the count, which is what he did. There have been challenges, really, since the beginning of our country to elections of presidents and vice presidents. I mean, why did they pass this law in 1887 to begin with? Because of the great battle in 1876. That's why. Where does Congress have the authority to pass a law like this? Does it have the authority to pass a law like this? Well, setting procedures for the counting 
Do they have the power to exclude the vice president as president of the Senate to have any effective role other than as a secretary, administrator, opening envelopes and making pronouncements about what he's received? What if you're president of the Senate, you're vice president of the United States, and you know there's disputes in states? You know there's a constitutional dispute in a state like Pennsylvania. And you, as the president of the Senate and as vice president, you you have an oath to uphold the Constitution too. And you read that second paragraph under Article 2, Section 1. Each state shall appoint in such manner as the legislature thereof may direct. Full stop. As the legislature thereof may direct. And you know as a matter of fact that that is not only in dispute, that that did not occur. And then you have people arguing, but the electors were selected and sent to the archivist of the United States by the governor. And yet it's the legislature that's challenging the governor. We're told too bad. The Vice President of the United States does not have any explicit power under the Constitution to do anything. In fact, we look at the 1887 statute and the way that we interpret it is that his role is utterly ministerial. You mean like judicial review? Where's judicial review in the Constitution? Well, somebody has to make the final decision. Well, where's the president of the Senate's role if he or she know, knows or believes that some of the electors being sent to the archivist and then to the joint session of Congress are in effect spoiled? Because there's a dispute between the legislature and the governor, but the governor, nonetheless, signs the accreditation. So when I read articles like Trump's absurd attack on Pence, and these guys, of course, they're not going to talk about the Constitution, they're not going to talk about past disputes and challenges, they're not going to talk about Article 2, Uh, Section 1, Paragraph 2, they're just going to dismiss Trump. Whether by hook or by crook, Trump has a better understanding than they do. Trump has a better understanding than they do, either intuitively or otherwise. Joining the mob... And telling us and telling us something that's not true because you can't demonstrate it under the Constitution of the United States serves no purpose but to mislead the American people. I'll be right back. Mark Levin. The Great One makes your weekend even better. This is the best of Mark Levin. 
Insurrection, January 6. Well, if there was an insurrection, broadly defined, it began well before January 6, didn't it? The Capitol building wasn't stormed before January 6, during the election, of course. But the changes to the laws involved in selecting a president and a vice president, in many cases, were in violation of the federal constitution. It's very specific. And it was violated by judges. It was violated by governors. It was violated by bureaucrats. It was violated by billionaires. It was violated by local administrators. If we're going to call it an insurrection, and the insurrection began long before January 6th, and this is what the pseudo-conservatives, the never-Trumpers, the media and the Marxist left do not want to discuss. They'll tell you 66 lawsuits. Nobody wanted to hear any. But the judges heard a lot of lawsuits from the Democrats. And in most cases upheld the changes in laws. Uh, and of course we have a, a brave appellate court in Pennsylvania that just ruled too. So let's not pretend that things were going to be changed or all changed on January 6th. Things were changed long before that. And now when Republican legislatures are trying to fix it, they are accused of acting like Jim Crow. Get it, folks? See how it works? I hope you'll replay this entire hour for family and friends. Mark Levin. We're giving you nothing but the best, the best of Mark Levin. Well, the media flacking for the January 6th committee. Any surprise there, ladies and gentlemen? How about this story? By John Solomon's Just the News. A fantastic site, by the way. Liberal mega donor George Soros pumps $125 million into Super PAC to help Democrats in 2022 midterms. Soros says money will support causes, candidates, regardless of political party, but so far recipients all appear to be major Democrat PACs. Of course, it's not regardless of political party. He's their sugar daddy. He's the sugar daddy for the American Marxists. His money is everywhere. I don't know who's buying off more people and groups and politicians. Xi in the communist China or George Soros. It's amazing how this man's never investigated, not by Congress, not by the phony media outlets, not by any grand juries. This man wants to buy this election for the Democrats. He's putting $125 million, nobody's ever done that, into a super PAC to help the Democrats in the midterms. You are going to be flooded now with commercials that lie to you. You are going to be flooded now with flyers that are sent to you. You're going to be overwhelmed with this information. They're going to use that money, I am sure, to push out their vote. So that's now two billionaires who are openly pushing their agenda. Although in the case of Mark Zuckerberg, with his $417 million, he didn't do it openly. So when you count Zuckerberg and Soros, you're talking about over half a billion dollars by two men. Or radical leftists 
and surrogates of the Democrat Party. Laundering this money through PACs, laundering this money through so-called nonprofit organizations. Let's go on. The piece says, let's see here, billionaire mega donor George Soros has poured $125 million into a super PAC this election cycle. The money already being distributed to political action committees backing Democrat candidates and causes. Now, Soros has used the super PAC known as Democracy PAC since 2019 to support political campaigns. It says the group's money will support causes and candidates that I just talked about. But the money is so far going to Democrat-leaning groups, including $2.5 million to the Senate Majority PAC, that's Schumer, $1 million to the House Majority PAC, that's Pelosi, $1 million to the Democrat Association of Secretaries of State, why? To affect the elections. A group fighting to elect Democrats to the formerly obscure posts that become a well-known and heavily politicized after the 2020 election. They're talking about secretaries of state and other positions of that sort. Soros calls his $125 million a long-term investment, quote-unquote, to continue supporting politicians and campaigns past 2020, because he's 90. There are no anal exams of this guy by the legal analysts out there. None. None. No, nothing by the legal analysts out there. It's true. Soros' son, Alexander Soros, will serve as the president of the PAC. He cited the January 6th Capitol riot as an example of the ongoing efforts to discredit and undermine our electoral process. We just had a victory in Pennsylvania. And you watch that Pennsylvania Supreme Court if it undermines that appellate court. That undermines our electoral process. That is an insurrection, one that's dressed up as a lawyerly, judge-made insurrection. He also argues such threats cannot be addressed in just one or two election cycles. You remember when the Black Panthers were threatening people at a voting precinct, Mr. Perdue? Remember that several election cycles ago? They stood right outside threatening people. Nothing ever happened. Isn't that amazing? Following its filing with the Federal Elections Commission, Democracy PAC spending will be posted publicly in the coming days. Can't wait for that, but there's usually a long delay between that and the spending of the money. Usually a long delay. But the Democrats never play fair. Talked about it the first hour, talking about Soros, we've talked about Zuckerberg. Gerrymandering. There's gerrymandering. It's a throwback to slavery. But nobody does gerrymandering better than the Democrats, who would know something about slavery, actually, considering it occurred mostly under them. Over at our friends at Breitbart, DCCC, Democratic Campaign Congressional Committee, endorsed, they like the letters, you know, like USSR. DCCC endorses aggressive gerrymander to leave New York with three Republican seats. Did you see this, Mr. Producer? You live in New York. It's a lot of people in New York. Do you think it would really be representative of the people of New York, including other areas of New York, central New York, north New York, closer to Canada? Do you think it would be representative of them to have three Republicans in the whole state in the House of Representatives? Unbelievable. Well, as long as you get those illegal aliens voting, everything will be copacetic. 
The Democrat Congressional Campaign Committee wants the New York legislature to approve an aggressive gerrymander that would leave New York with three Republican and 23 Democrat seats in Congress. Now let me tell you how the Democrats have manipulated in a very nefarious and unconscionable manner the 1965 Civil Rights Act. The point of the 1965 Civil Rights Act, among other things, is to ensure that congressional districts aren't drawn in a way as to deny minorities, in particular black people, their representation in Congress. That's the purpose in one major section. So what the Democrats do with the so-called Civil Rights Division of the Department of Justice, yuck, yuck, what they do is anytime districts are drawn that might help the Republicans, they go into federal court in the states that are covered, and they argue that they are trying to diminish the vote of minorities, particularly black citizens. You don't see that happening when the Democrats gerrymander, do you? And what the Democrats try to do is they try and put as many minorities in single districts as they possibly can so they can have as many white Democrats in Congress as possible. Did you know that? So from time to time you'll see these lawsuits where the Republicans and uh, black organizations are on the same side because the Democrat Party's playing the system. Now I keep warning We keep talking about 2022 as a blowout. Ladies and gentlemen, it may well be. And I pray to God that it is. But I'm not Nostradamus. I don't know what's going to happen. I see the polls. I see the the pundits. I even hear some of the Democrats saying we're going to get blown out. Okay, I hope they do. But the Democrats are not rolling over and playing dead. Nobody. Nobody is more sinister than the people who run that party and their lawyers. And what they are doing with gerrymandering right now is they're picking off a whole bunch of seats for themselves, whether these people get elected or not. In other words, they're making certain that they are setting up these districts so only Democrats can win. You have a whole state in New York. You're going to wind up with three Republicans? In Maryland, they have one Republican House seat, Mr. Bader. They're trying to eliminate it. They're trying to eliminate all representation of any Republican in the House of Representatives from the state of Maryland. So anybody who doesn't live in Montgomery County or Prince George's County or Baltimore really won't have their representation. These are the population pockets, and the Democrats use the population pockets to try and destroy any Republican districts. And this is the game. And so if the Republicans go in and they say, no, 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 we're not going to do that. We need to redraw that. Oh, you're taking a seat or two or three away from minorities. This is what the Democrats do. They are pernicious. They are evil. Did I say evil? I meant evil. This is how they play this game. And now they're going to use a lot of Soros' money to do it. Democracy pack. Who's he fooling? Who's he fooling? In his case, the whole pack should be called fascist pack. Because that's what they're promoting over there, in my humble opinion. And I know I'm right. There's been a lot of hubbub today. I don't even know what hubbub is. But there's been a lot of hubbub today about this call Biden had with the president of Ukraine. And there should be a lot of hubbub because there is 
a dispute over what actually took place. And uh, I heard our friend Kaylee McEnany, I heard her say, um, you know, this issue of transcripts that was brought up during Trump, the Democrats and the media, but particularly the Democrats, demanded the transcript from President Trump's call to the president of Ukraine, which was a perfectly fine call, perfectly fine. The way they twisted it and twisted the wording is disgusting, but that's what they do, much like they treat the Constitution. But anyway, so people are talking about consistency here. Let's release the transcript. And I hear some Republicans saying, no, you know, I want to tell you something. If we do not use the opportunity to do to them what they do to us, this will never stop. We need to ram their tactics down their damn throats. Joe Biden must be impeached. And I want Kevin McCarthy to hear me clearly. Steve Scalise. Elise Stefanik, the three leaders of the Republican Party. He has committed impeachable offenses. I'm not talking about a syllable here and there and a transcript. I know. What's going on on the southern border in and of itself. Failing to comply with existing federal statutes respecting immigration is an effort to completely upset the constitutional construct. You do not have the right, the power, you do not have it as president to only enforce laws you agree with. And when we reach that point, it's over. And we have got to fight these tripwires. We've got to do it. And so I am telling you that this issue, and there are other issues, need to be used. Now, if the Republicans are too scared to bring it up during the course of the election, they'll make their own decision. But I want to make it clear, if they take the House, there's not going to be any patience for them to use the base the way Boehner sought to use the base, the way Paul Ryan sought to use the base, or the way any of these other phony speakers tried to use the base. We have individuals in the other party who are destroying our country. And we cannot have Marcus of Queensbury rules on one side and UFC rules on the other. No. This man has committed an impeachable offense, if not impeachable offenses. And there ought to be discussion about the 25th Amendment because the 25th Amendment was actually adopted for cases like this. Where a man in the Oval Office, or a woman, or somebody transitioning, or whatever the hell, that person has lost more than a few marbles. Who is running this executive branch? Who's running the Biden administration? And the point of a, an inquiry based on the 25th Amendment is to get to the bottom of that. Now, Bill, well, you got to wait for this to trigger, that to trigger. Now, the House can look into it. They can't trigger it themselves, but there's a reason they can look into it. But impeachment is actually easier than the 25th Amendment. There's no two-thirds vote requirement in the House for conviction, of course. I'm talking about to open an investigation. 
They should put Jim Jordan at the top of that Judiciary Committee and start rolling. And maybe put put one of the more solid individuals who really believe in the Constitution and the rule of law to head of Homeland Security, where all the activities going on are lack thereof. This cannot stand. He's negotiating with the Iranian regime, the Islamo-Nazi regime in Tehran, in secret. Congress, at least the Republicans, don't have the foggiest idea what's going on. On a matter of life and death. That bastard regime is trying to get ICBMs with nuclear warheads. What's that all about? And they ought to open a full-scale investigation. Not on Hunter Biden, not on Frank Biden, on Joe Biden, who's in the Oval Office. On Joe Biden, to determine the extent to which he's been bought off by the Chinese regime or any other regime. Joe Biden was always a political thug. Nasty, rotten, the way he treated other people. Who didn't deserve it? Bork, Thomas, others. Who didn't deserve it? We've had enough of sitting on our hands and watching this stuff. It's enough already. They're still chasing Donald Trump at Mar-a-Lago. Still going after his taxes. Still going after his kids. Trying to pin January 6th on the President of the United States at the time, when he's the one that offered up the National Guard. Meanwhile... They're Helen Keller when it comes to Nancy Pelosi. Well, of course. That's what news anchors today, tonight, tomorrow should be asking Jim Jordan and others. How is it that she gets away with this? Nancy Pelosi. I want to say Brett Baer did ask Liz Cheney that question, by the way, when she was on his show. By the way, Liz, uh, we always have an open time for you to come on the program. You used to come on all the time when you were running for office and so forth. We'd love to have you back. We would, Liz. Back in January, on January 24th, the uh, what should be the Pulitzer Prize winning Julie Kelly running in the writing in the publication The American Greatness, said of the more than 725 Americans arrested so far for various crimes related to the Capitol protest on January 6th, nearly every defendant faces the same two misdemeanor charges, entering and remaining in a restricted building or grounds and disorderly conduct in a restricted building or grounds. Now, the basis for the offense is not, as the American people repeatedly have been told, that the building was closed to the public that day. After all, Hundreds of people were allowed inside as Capitol Police stood by. No signage or official announcements alerted the public that the building was off limits. Instead, the Justice Department has argued that the presence of both Vice President Michael Pence and incoming Vice President Kamala Harris rendered entry into the Capitol on January 6th a federal crime under 18 United States Code Section 1752. In every charging document, the government relies on that section, 1752, to define as restricted building. A restricted building is the location of the president or other person protected by the Secret Service, which would have included Pence 
and Harris. And yet, she asks, were they there? And specific, was Harris there? I mean, after all, it's serious. You're trying to put people in prison or trying to destroy them by making this allegation. Otherwise, why make it? Julie Kelly has asked, and Julie Kelly is with us now. Julie, how are you? I'm good, Mark. How are you? Thanks for having me on. I'm doing very, very well, thank you. You have something to add to this now that is really uh, earth-shattering, but of course, nobody else will comment on it but me. So go ahead and tell us what happened. So after we ran that article, and you and I chatted last week, a federal judge, Trevor McFadden, a Trump appointee who's been playing along with DOJ for the entire time, keeping people behind bars, etc., I guess finally realized what a scam this was, and in a filing today, motion today, very strongly worded motion, condemned the government for repeatedly lying that Kamala Harris was in the Capitol building, using that as the premise for all of these hundreds of misdemeanor charges, leaving it uncorrected in superseding indictments, including the case that he was hearing today, and basically accusing the government of of acting improperly. Uh, He says, and I quote, this all suggests a certain lack of attention and care in the prosecution of this case, undermining any confidence the court can have in the government's representations, basically calling out DOJ for lying, and furthermore, Mark, for misleading a grand jury for over a year, telling them the basis for these charges was the fact that Kamala Harris and Mike Pence were in the building that day. I take it they were not in the building that day, or at least not in the building when this occurred then, correct? Well, get this, Mark. This is even more intriguing. Kamala Harris not only was not in the Capitol building, she was at the headquarters of the Democratic National Committee, the same building where an alleged pipe bomb was recovered by Capitol Police a little after 1 o'clock that day. Now, this has been concealed from the public since January 6th. Uh, she has never specified where she was. Capitol Police have never testified that she was there. Uh, this reporting just came out in a timeline Capitol Police apparently gave in another court case and uh, was reported by Politico. So that's even more interesting because, of course, as you know, Mark, we still haven't found the pipe bomber, right? I mean, we could track down the Indiana Mima who went in the Capitol for five minutes and took selfies. But the guy who not only planted a pipe bomb outside the DNC and RNC headquarters, but allegedly threatened the life of a sitting U.S. senator and an incoming vice president. But the FBI seems to have no interest in trying to track down who that person is. So Harris was not in the building, despite repeated uh, assertions by the Department of Justice and these various AUSAs that she obviously was. And apparently Pence, I'm just inferring that from what the judge said, what you read, was not either. Now, that seems to me very simple to figure that out, including for the rest of the media, but they don't care. So now what's going to happen, all these cases that have already come and gone and all the cases that are going forward? I wonder if this judge is going to hold anybody in contempt. I wonder if this judge is going to compel the uh, the the the. I don't know, the cleansing of certain of the records of certain of the individuals. I mean, did he make any indication of what he's going to do about it? 
he didn't. But I mean, how can they not, Mark? I'm an attorney. I know you are. But how how can they not? Literally, almost every single defendant of the 730, as you read from my piece, has one of these trespassing charges. This is the basis for why the building was supposed to be off limits. So how can they not reprimand or or somehow punish the DOJ or just automatically dismiss every single one of these charges in these cases? Um, what McFadden said today, furthermore, the DOJ does not want defense to cross-examine the Secret Service as to the specific location of Mike Pence, which still is very sketchy. So McFadden today denied the prosecution's motion to limit cross-examination of, of Secret Service agents. They have to tell the jury exactly where um, Mike Pence was inside the building because they repeatedly said Mike Pence was in the building, not in the garage, not in Capitol Complex somewhere, in the building. That appears to not be true as well. So you could have not just one lie told by DOJ to federal courts, to defendants, to grand juries, but we could have two lies, egregious lies, animating lies about January 6th that this DOJ is responsible for. I certainly hope Judge McFadden is serious about this. I mean, it's not enough to write things down in an order or in a decision that he follows up on this, because if we have a long train of uh, lies here, using the same lie over and over and over again, and clearly then the uh, uh, the Department of Justice would have known what it is doing, uh, people's heads need the roll. I mean, from a legal mm-hmm. perspective, you cannot have that sort of thing. People need to be punished. I don't know. When I used to go into court, it's been a long time, but when I used to go into court, I did everything humanly possible to make sure any representation that I made was accurate, and I wasn't prosecuting anybody. I mean, when you're prosecuting somebody, you better make sure you're telling the truth. And apparently they weren't telling the truth because Kamala Harris wasn't in the building. That we know as a matter of fact. So hopefully every defense lawyer in this case is now going to file a motion of one sort or another, in front of the judge uh, where this case... But let me ask you this, Julie. If this judge knew it, the other judges had to know it, too, didn't they? They, they all talked. sure did. They've mm-hmm. known it for months, Mark. The chief judge, Beryl Howell, had to be uh, corrected in court. In a court hearing in November, a prosecutor said, when she was talking about Kamala Harris having to flee the building, and a prosecutor had to say, oh, I'm sorry, Judge, we, we just found out recently she wasn't in the building. The chief judge has known about it for three months. And, didn't, and has done nothing. Now, these are the same judges throwing people pleading guilty to parading in the Capitol, throwing them in jail for 60 days, keeping 70-plus men detained behind bars awaiting trial, not convicted of any crime, but yet they can't fix this. And one of them wants to go to the Supreme Court, as I understand it. Tanya Chutkin, she sure does. Or at least is under consideration for the yes. uh, Supreme well, this is appalling, and I want to thank you. You're absolutely terrific. I want to give you the Mark Levin Award. Can I do that? Oh, my God. Yes. I haven't given one of those out. I just curated it just this minute. Stop it. Stop. Yes. It's better than the Pulitzer, believe me. I'm glad All you right, Julie. my face right now. <laughs> well, fantastic. We give you the first official Mark Levin Award. Oh, my God. Thank you, Mark. Well, All thank right. you for covering this. You, you've been so helpful in spreading the word. Well, God bless you. Keep it up. We appreciate you very much. Julie Kelly, look at that. 
What are they going to do about this? This is a serious matter. The government's been lying time and time again in order for some of these charges to stand. I'm sure the rest of the media is going to cover this. Even some of my friends who are journalists, I'm sure they're going to rush right in and cover this. I won't humiliate them by mentioning their names. I'll be right back. Mark Lovin. Well, it's a pleasure to have uh, with us tonight Congressman Troy Nels. How are you, sir? It's good to be with you, great one. We've met some time ago before you were a congressman. Now, you were uh, in law enforcement, correct? That is correct. For 30 years, eight years as a sheriff, and I met you in Colorado. I remember. You're, you're a good man. So you're in law enforcement, eight years as a sheriff. Tell the American people... All 14 million of them. What happened to you in your office? Well, I discovered that the Capitol Police were in my office back in the month of November taking pictures of my whiteboard that had my legislative priorities on. Now, I asked the question, what were the Capitol Police doing inside my office? They claim that they found a door open to my office on a Saturday afternoon. So allegedly the officer walks into this open door, wide open door, looks around my office, makes sure there's no one inside my office that doesn't belong there, and then he starts looking around at papers and looks at my whiteboard, and he looks at that board and says, those were some of that. It looked suspicious to him. So he took a picture and then sent it to the command center, who then sent it to special agents, who then sent it to another supervisor in the special agent investigations uh, agency. And then I have three super secret investigators knocking on my door that following Monday, confronting one of my staffers as to the language on my whiteboard, which had everything to do with my legislative priorities. There was nothing suspicious about it, and, and I find it insulting. But this is what happens. This is what happens to individuals that go against the grain, against Nancy Pelosi. I've been very vocal, great one, as it relates to January 6th and the assault on the Capitol, the killing of Ashley Babbitt. It's just so I've been very, very vocal critic, and they're coming after me. Mm-hmm. Boy, talk about interfering with the legislative process. Uh, I can't think of anything worse. So they go into your office. They're taking pictures of information. I cannot believe Nancy Pelosi would at some point know about this. Can you? Well, I believe that what, what we know with Nancy Pelosi is that she has now weaponized. She has taken the Capitol Police now and using the Capitol Police, that federal law enforcement agency, has, has her own Gestapo. She's out there. She gets these intelligence agents and these investigators to go out and spy now on members of Congress. And it just isn't by coincidence. She came after me because she knows that McCarthy asked me to be one of the five on the select committee. She knows that I've done a great deal of research into January 6th. I know a little bit more about it than the average member of Congress. And now she's trying to silence me and intimidate me. 
and quite honestly destroy me, and she's using the Capitol Police as that tool, as a way to do it. What can you do in response to this? Well, what I've done is I fight back. I said, well, let's have that conversation. Well, number one, I don't believe he had any authority, whatever officer it was, to take pictures in my office. I believe no. we, those are protected under the spe- uh, speech and debate clause in the Constitution. So I, I think that, number one, there's all sorts of problems there. But I'm pushing back. I'm fighting back. And the AG, the Capitol Police, the IG has stated, the IG has stated that he will conduct an investigation. He heard my story. And he's going to conduct an investigation. It's going to be an independent, standalone investigation. And I can't wait to see the result. Now, so you have an inspector general on Capitol Hill? That's correct. And he, he is the inspector general over the Capitol Police. And he did a very, very good deep dive into January 6th, looking at the Senate reports and the Capitol Police and identified numerous Mark, numerous deficiencies with the intelligence section and the leadership of the Capitol Police. And quite honestly, he's, he's identified many things that need to be changed. It pretty much, he paraphrased it this way, there's a great deal of incompetence there. And January 6th should have never happened, Mark. The intelligence was there, but they did nothing with it. Mm-hmm. Right? They want to protect Pelosi, so they won't investigate what she knew, when she knew it, and what, if anything, she did. Well, that's exactly right. And what you see with this, this, this sham committee, Benny Thompson's made it very clear, Nancy's off limits. She's mm-hmm. off limits. We're not going to talk about Nancy Pelosi. She lied to the American people yesterday when she said, I have no power over the Capitol Police. That is a bold-faced lie. She appoints the sergeant at arms, the sergeant at arms, when he walks into her office, as well as the chief of police, I can, I can tell you they're at the position of attention. So, no, Nancy Pelosi controls everything up there. She controls the, the Capitol Police. So the idea to say, well, we're going to look into January 6th, but you can't look into Nancy. She's off limits. But we're going to go after Steve Bannon, Mark Meadows, Donald Trump, and everybody related to Donald Trump and community organizers. People put the parades together and permitting. It's a sad state of affairs that this select committee isn't out to seek the truth. That's the problem. No, it's a complete sham. There's no question about it. And uh, but this is uh, this is very troublesome. Um, I'm I'm just trying to figure out how you can gather documentation are you able to sue her directly have you have you uh, consulted an attorney do you know well i have spoken to an attorney and i my plan is to is to let the ig come back with his report and i believe his report is going to favor my position i believe he's going to come back and say that the capitol police have no authority whatsoever under any circumstance to start taking pictures inside members' offices of their legislative workings. Mm-mm-mm. Those those documents are protected. So once he comes back with his finding, then I'll get an attorney and I'll file some type of a civil suit to make sure the limited, the limited integrity we have remaining in Washington and that big swamp of D.C. 
is protected. Members like me and all 434 others should feel protected and secure with our materials inside our office. And that's what I have to make sure it, this can never happen again. Here you go. House launches probe of Trump's White House records, 15 boxes. I mean, this is all they do. Investigate an ex-president, 15 boxes. Here you have a member of Congress that it looks pretty clear to me. Somebody sent the, uh, the Capitol Police in there to gather information against you, sir. That's what they did. All right. I appreciate it. It's always a pleasure, my friend. You're a good man. We'll be back. Ladies and gentlemen, we salute our armed forces, police officers, firefighters, emergency personnel, and our truckers. And each and every one of you patriots. We shall prevail. God bless you. And I'll see you right here tomorrow. Tomorrow.